0: Good morning church, great to see you today, what a blessing it is to be together, I'm excited for this time every week, favorite part of my week is to be with you all to worship our good God, to study his holy word, to be ready for the week ahead that he's prepared for us that we would not be guilty of making these things about ourselves, about temporary treasures that are fleeting, but about the living God, his worthy glory, what he is due, making much of his holy name. I want to ask you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We're in part two of our mini-series called Feast, as we're studying this single chapter of Isaiah 55. Uh, again, as Marilyn mentioned earlier, if you would like to follow along in the Scriptures, we have Bibles uh, at the door there. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to make that yours so you can study the Holy Word of God with us. Uh, and then also there's a, a pile of Blank sermon notes back there, if you'd like to take notes to capture thoughts and ideas that you might study more later throughout the week, that's there available to you as well. I want to start by reading a portion of the text that we studied last week, in Isaiah 55, verse 1, through the middle of 3. Come, everyone who thirst, come to the waters, and he who has no money Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. Today I want to pick up here in this middle part of verse 3 and work through the end of verse 5. The sermon that I've titled, An Everlasting International Feast. Again, let me read the beginning of verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And now the second part of verse 3. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Word of our Lord. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love, sure love for David. The you here in this part of verse 3 is plural. This you is the chosen ones those God has chosen for his universal church. It is the body of Christ. This is the promise of God to make with his people an everlasting and eternal covenant. What is a covenant? He says, I'll, I'll make with you an everlasting covenant. We need to understand what a covenant is. Uh, the word covenant is commonly used in social marriage and theological context. Neighbor kids don't really run down the street saying, hey bro, do you covenant? (laughs) It's more than that. Merriam-Webster defines covenant as a formal and serious agreement or promise. Another dictionary defines it as a binding agreement, a compact. But when God makes a covenant, it's called a divine covenant. A divine covenant is unique in that it is initiated by God. Our Word of Truth Catechism says a divine covenant is a relational agreement initiated by God that may include obligations, rewards, and or punishments from him. When God enters a covenant, it was not a good idea of someone else that he picked up on Rather, it is his decree to do so. And it is the terms that he sets. This is the foundation of the good news we read here in Isaiah 55.3. God has declared and decreed a covenant that is to be everlasting. A commitment, a promise that is to be everlasting forever a promise to his people to redeem us and bring us into his eternal kingdom to banquet with him forever at his all-satisfying feast. The feast is an unfathomable fellowship with God and his people that will be greater than anything else we've ever known. And it will be Everlasting, it will be forever. Church, consider the weight of the things I'm speaking to you today. The things given forth here in Isaiah 55 are truly good news. As we build on the invitation to feast that we saw last week in verse 1-3, through the fact that it is paid for by Christ himself, that we have nothing to bring, To gain us favor or entrance, these are truly game changing realities we covered last week. They're part of the good news that replaces the counterfeits that in our flesh we are guilty of far too long pursuing. Things we've lifted up and cherished and put so much value and time and effort into, things that are fleeting and temporary that will never fulfill us like only God can. Here in verse 3, we're given the foundation we stand on for the hope of these future realities at this forever feast. They are all a part of the good news. Promises of God. We read about here is the fulfillment of the spiritual promises found in the Davidic covenant with those realities are found with the installation of the new covenant. Pastor Matt spoke of earlier, in the new covenant brought forth by the blood of Jesus. Really, this new covenant being spoken of in our passage is the fulfillment of all the spiritual promises made during all of the old covenant. To truly appreciate and understand this, I want to remind you what God has been doing prior to and in all of human history regarding the covenants, the divine covenants He has made and why they are so vitally important to you and I today. Look with me at this graphic that was made years ago when we talked through this portion of the uh, catechism. Um looking at the covenants, divine covenants. And you see the uniqueness of the covenant of redemption on the left, covenant made before creation. You see creation, the Adamic Covenant, the Wayic Covenant, Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic, Synactic Covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant. So I want to briefly walk through these so we can understand the weight of what's being said here in verse 3. It begins with the covenant of redemption, simply defined as the plan or decree made before creation between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Two, The plan was to redeem the chosen ones from their sin and punishment based on the work required of Jesus, of God the Son. All of creation is set in the context of this divine plan. You want to further understand that fleshed out in scripture, just make a note to study Ephesians chapter 1. This covenant sets the stage for all of human history and eternity. This is the big one we read about, like I said, in Ephesians 1. Everything else fits into. All of creation is set into the context of the divine covenant. This means that everything that happens in creation happens because of God's divine plan, because of the covenant of redemption. Then we have creation. And we have the Adamic covenant. It's a covenant that required Adam to obey and trust God entirely. In this obedience, he would be rewarded with eternal life and blessing, but disobedience would be punished with curse and death. Adam disobeyed the fall of man, bringing the consequences of our federal head, Adam, upon all of mankind. The Noahic Covenant is next, which is God's promise of gracious preservation for a time. We also speak of this as common grace, a grace that he would put over all mankind for the rest of his timeline to carry out what was intended in the covenant of redemption, the covenant into the installation of the new covenant. So there's a grace that God gives. We see his wrath applied to all mankind, except for the family of Noah in the flood, That, that mankind in our sin is worthy of his judgment and wrath. But then in the aftermath of that, he says, I promise not to do that again, I will give a grace, I will have great patience, despite the grossness and wickedness of man moving forward, to essentially carry out his plan. When we come to the Old Covenant, it is made up of three very important covenants. Throughout Old Testament history, we see these three covenants unfold, and they together make up the Old Covenant. You can see that pictured for you in the graphic. The Old Covenant is a temporary covenant. It's temporary. It has a has its purpose for a time. And it's made primarily with the Israelites, God's chosen people, a physical people named the Israelites. And it is defined by the Abrahamic covenant. It is conditioned by the Mosaic covenant and the law through Moses and focused by the Davidic covenant this covenant offered temporary blessings, but it did not offer eternal life. Those in the old covenant are still desperate for the new covenant in order to be saved. Through promises and types and shadows, it taught about the Messiah. We see this all throughout Scripture, who was to come to fulfill the law and establish the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, to redeem the elect. Notice the third divine covenant of the Old Covenant is the Davidic Covenant. This is the covenant that Isaiah 55 is highlighting. The story of David's rise to the throne of Israel is found in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. The anointing of David as king is a crucial event in redemptive history, God's plan to redeem a people. God uses David's throne to point us to the Messiah, who was promised in the garden in Genesis 3.15. God said to David in 2 Samuel 7.16, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. In this, God points to a house and a kingdom much greater than Israel. God was declaring that specifically from David's line The Messiah would come, and this Messiah would be the truer and better and final King. He is the one who would fulfill the covenant of redemption by completing the work given him, making the temporary nature of the old covenant obsolete. It's not needed and therefore installing the new covenant between God and his redeemed people and eternal people of God. Let me unpack another layer here before we bring verse 3 all together. Notice in verse 3, Isaiah 55, 3, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. So he's pointing towards the everlasting, the new covenant. Built on my steadfast and sure love for David. David was God's chosen king he was a man the scriptures say after God's own heart his love for his eternal people is shown in God's love for David and, and so don't miss this because this is really critical God's love for David depended on God's character not David's character We love to flip that around. We love to see that because David was somehow special, that's why God loved him like he did. No, David was a sinner. We have numerous examples of gross failure by David. God chose David. And because of God's character, put his love on David. David did not earn God's favor and love. He was chosen by God for God's good purposes and will, despite David's repeated failures, God's love for him is steadfast. Let me show you. When David repented in Psalm 51 of his adultery with Bathsheba, saw a beautiful naked woman on a rooftop afar, used his authority to go be with her, and then had her husband killed to cover it up. We're not talking minor offenses here. Psalm 51.1, David cries out to God, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Notice, David is not saying, because I've done something to earn your favor or mercy. My only hope is according to your character. I have nothing to offer. David knows he's chosen by God because of God's abundant, undeserved love. Therefore, he knows he will only be forgiven and sustained by the same means, God's abundant character and love. David doesn't appeal to anything he's done. He appeals to the very nature of who God is. Therefore, throughout his life, David would appeal to God and not his own rights. For God's favor to remain on him, he says in Psalm seventeen eight, keep me as the apple of your eye. David's dependent on God's character, not his own. And we should be too. We should be dependent on God, not slipping to consider that my standing with God is good or right or better because of anything that you and I have done or do. To set aside the gospel and then to think that somehow I'm doing better with God and performing better is, is an anti-gospel way of considering your standing with God. it is to set aside the gospel and to lie about how God has relationship with any of us who are sinners Isaiah 55 3 says that he will make an everlasting covenant a eternal covenant with his people based on his steadfast and sure love for David church we want to see the perfection and beauty of God's plan from the beginning we want to see and understand the importance of the covenant made with David why because you and I's eternal standing rides on the back of that which he planned to do in and through David and fulfilling it with Jesus God's steadfast love for David is promised when he makes the Davidic covenant Second Samuel 7 13 through 16. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is such good news if we rightly understand the love that God had for David, the plan that God had for David. Because it's the basis of his love for us. The everlasting covenant We are promised is the new covenant that Jesus installs by living the perfect life, substituting himself in our place, rising from the grave to rule and reign on the eternal throne as our great and hallowed king. We see the fulfillment of the spiritual promises of the old covenant when Jesus comes. We see that God's promise of Abraham's seed is accomplished, we see God's even more focused promise of the Messiah coming specifically from David's line within Abraham's line is all accomplished. And it's potently powerful in the first verse of the first gospel of Matthew chapter one, verse one. This is not just a passing genealogy, On it, on its shoulders is the weight of the work of God unto the eternal promise of God that we rest in forever. Hear it. The book, the Matthew 1:1 opens this way: the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is awesome. This is God saying, I did what I promised. God did what he decreed to do, what he has been promising to mankind all along, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the definition of the new covenant is this. The new covenant is the covenant by which God saves the elect, his people, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The new covenant was planned before creation, promised in Genesis after the fall, formally established, the new covenant is established by the blood of Christ when the work required of him was complete on the cross. This is the promise of God for all who trust in him alone for salvation to enter into his everlasting feast. This is the meaning of the good news when we read, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Do you stand, live on the promises of God? Do they do they undergird your soul? Do they fuel your faith church may we not be a people when when something happens when a season happens when a catastrophe happens or may we not be a people that's just unseated and undone in a moment because we stand on all of this history of this eternal plan for an everlasting Relationship with God that's fulfilled in Christ. You stand on all that. You have that in Christ. May it embolden our faith. May the promises of God not be buried in the back of the drawer, but on the forefronts of our mind, lived out in our words and our actions as life happens, as sickness happens, as as injustices happen, as death happens, as, as life happens comes at us, we stand in the promises of God. I want you to understand these things because they're a strong foundation of the work and will of God in our lives. You see him at work in all these things for our eternal good and for his eternal glory. Amen? Look with me at verse 4. Behold, behold, I make him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, that word means to look closely at, look intently at. Look intently at what? At him. I made him a witness to the peoples. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. So who's the him? If it's David, it's only because David is a witness to the peoples of the world in that the covenant for the eternal throne of God is made through him. David is a witness in that Jesus who is the promised one of old and the basis of the new and everlasting covenant is the fulfillment of the line of David in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. David who points to Jesus. So ultimately we don't just behold David. To ever just behold David is to miss the very purpose of David, his life, and that covenant that points to Christ, who is ultimate, who is the fulfillment, who is our eternal hope. It's behold Jesus. It's John 1.14. And we have seen, seen, beheld his glory as of the only Son from the Father. Seen here in John 1.14 is the word beheld. And, and I just I want us to do a little bit of personal business with this for a moment. So we grasp the fullness of the difference between just seeing something flippantly, casually, experientially, and even emotionally, just, just seeing it and beholding it. You see a lot of things in your daily life. But but what are the things that you stop and you behold? You look intently at. You get lost in it. You, You are boggled by it. What are you beholding lately? What is worthy of you beholding? For some, maybe what's on your mind is to make time to think about and plan for a beholding, but that beholding is sinful. What you're thinking about is wretched. for others of you or all lumped together maybe what you think about when I ask you what are you beholding lately is maybe something really good like a family member or something in creation that's just beautiful. Now I'm not saying to slow down and cherish and behold some of those things that are not innately sinful, is bad. But I do challenge, is that all that you really ever behold or known for beholding? Are you known for just romancing your spouse and just cherishing your spouse? But you're not known for beholding God? Consider the danger of being an idolater in that, cherishing our family or some of these good things, a good job, or so high, so wonderfully that, they, that God is in the background. He, he will not be in the background. We must consider how much more glorious and wondrous and mighty and all-worthy God is to these things. Not that we don't behold good things, but that we so rightly behold them in comparison to God. Behold our God, seated on the throne. We sang it. It comes from Isaiah, the same book we're in today, chapter 6. Isaiah is looking into the heavens. He's given this. This really precious moment to ponder into the heavens and consider. And he says in verse 1 through 3, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew Time out. How short-sighted are we when given view of this sixth-winged creature that we're in awe or boggled by it more than God. The one whose very existence is in place and mentioned to only lift higher the one whom that creature exists to point to. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The picture that Isaiah experienced of heaven being opened with a glimpse into the majesty and glory in the presence of Jesus Seated on the throne, ruling over all peoples, times, and places, and he's being worshiped. A.W. Pink, old theologian, said it this way The glories of the Lord are infinite, and from him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. No subject ought to be dearer to the heart of a believer. Whose glory are you beholding, church? Who is more worthy of our beholding than Jesus? No one, nothing. Behold, John 1 behold God in flesh. We beheld his glory, we've seen his glory. If you're feeling like some of this may be a little random, it's awesome how God's word does this. Look at Acts chapter 13, 32 through 39. See if you catch synopsis of everything we've said so far in a New Testament authored letter, Acts 13, 32 through 39. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, the old covenants, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way I will give you the holy and sure blessings of who? Of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I love how awesome it is. Isaiah 55 speaks of Jesus' fulfillment of all these things 700 years before they happened. And after it, the apostles look back from Acts 13, and elsewhere in the New Testament with great clarity of what Christ alone fulfills in all these divine covenants, all these promises, all these workings of history. Back to Isaiah 55, 4, behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, See David, who points to Jesus. David, who is a high king, a leader and a commander of the peoples, who points to the high king, Jesus Christ, the leader and commander of the peoples. What peoples? What is the scope of the promise of God to send the Redeemer? To the redeemed, a people to his eternal feast. What's the scope? Who are the peoples who get to go to the everlasting international feast? In the title, I'm kind of giving it away. How diverse and wide will the peoples who are invited and paid for to come feast to have their sins forgiven with God and his eternal family? How wide is that group? Verse 5. Isaiah 55, 5. Behold... You shall call a nation that you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. The you here is singular, referring to the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus. Who will draw a people from all nations to himself through his suffering on their behalf? Just three chapters sooner than 55, in the end of chapter 52 of Isaiah, it says this, verse 14 and 15. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. When it says he will call a nation he did not know, it does does not mean he is lacking knowledge about them. We let scripture interpret scripture. That would be to say that God is not all knowing, an attribute by which he's clearly given throughout scripture. Therefore, that is not what that means. Jesus is omniscient, he's all knowing. So, what this means is when it says, You shall call a nation that you do not know, it is that he didn't yet know them, know them in a relational way. These are a people who were not Israel a worldwide people who would become his people in the new covenant. Gentiles and many other nations and people, generations. A people or nation that did not know Jesus because of our sin, because of our spiritual blindness. But again, because of God and not because of anything we have done or do, he will gather his people, a worldwide people God promises to redeem a worldwide people. This is the promise of the covenant of redemption before time and the fulfillment of Christ in the new covenant, an everlasting covenant. I want you to see and savor this morning the internationalness of the feast that we will enjoy with God forever. In this we will better see the purpose of our God given us in the Great Commission to go make disciples of all nations. Well, I won't get into the pragmatics of, of all the layers of application. one of the buzzing, topics of our culture and time is on racism. The answer for racism is the gospel. It's a beautiful embrace of the diversity of a worldwide people. Come, Lord Jesus, do Your mighty work in our, in our people, in our in our culture, and instill in so many ways our very limited conviction to love on so many more races and tribes and tongues that are. Modern current day confession and repentance would be how comfortable we are not making disciples, preaching the gospel enough so that it ministers to, blesses, and considers high those that you intend to redeem to be your people forever representatives of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Father, may we be in tune with your plan for all these things. The power of Jesus, may it be so. Amen. Flip with me to Genesis chapter 1. I pray we would not be small-minded. I pray that we would see and celebrate all that God is doing Worldwide and from generation to generation, I want to give you a quick tour to remind you of this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, we see God makes mankind in his image, after his likeness. In verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We need to see that this is a command of God that is something greater than just reproduction. Its intention is to produce a vast number of people around the world who will, by His sovereign providence and grace, know and worship Him. As we stand with mankind's first couple and hear their commission from God, we can picture a worldwide people who will make much of God's holy name, fill the earth and subdue it. But the fall of mankind brings sin and self instead of God worship. God brings judgment on that first couple, banning them from the garden. Sin plays out grotesquely worldwide. God brings his judgment, righteously floods the earth. Not very long after, you have the separation of the human race with races in the division of mankind at the Tower of Babel, because of their arrogance to try to build the tower to the heavens, set God aside. He still will have a worldwide people whom he will redeem. His gospel will be translated. The work of the Holy Spirit will do his mighty work to bring the gospel into dead ears that people would believe and be saved and redeemed. The promise in the Abrahamic covenant comes in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Leave your land, leave your comfort and go. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth. This doesn't mean all people, that all people are saved. We know that clearly, again, in studying all of Scripture, is not the case. That's not God's will. It's not God's unmet hope, as some very wrongly proclaim, making God impotent. It is another way of saying a people from all nations, tribes, languages, and people groups. Each of these families will have people or representatives who receive this promised blessing in God's perfect and sovereign way. What is the ultimate blessing God is talking about right here? The blessing of restored life to God. The blessing that the gospel brings to those whom God saves through the atoning work of Jesus, the promised Messiah. This is all pointing to the finished work of Jesus. The blessing is life with God found only in Jesus. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those Those for whom Jesus died in their place. Those whom Jesus gives, God gives ears to hear and eyes to see in His glorious grace. Those whom, as a result of unveiled eyes, see the wretchedness of their sin and confess it. They repent. They turn from it. See the beauty of Christ alone and cling to Him and trust in Him above all else. Trust that God has paid for their sins in the blood of Jesus Remove them from their wrath. Do them in sin that they have been placed in Christ and will reign with Him forever. Cloaked in His righteousness, restored to an eternal and all-satisfying relationship with God forever. This is the greatest blessing we could ever receive. When one asks you how you're doing, My hope and prayer is that this is the first thing that comes to your mind. And despite how bad you itch, how poor you are, how mad you are at life, you see with clear eyes that you are blessed. If you are here today and you've not truly trusted your life to Jesus, then you should. There's no greater blessing than to be restored and to live for the name of the Holy God. See that the blessing is not just for us, but it is to eventually make its way to every tribe, tongue, and nation to the earth. In other words, there will be some people who represent every tribe, tongue, and nation of the earth who are a part of God's saved saints, a part of God's eternal family, this everlasting international feast. Not every person in every tribe, but some persons from every tribe. Now, let me show you how God's plan for a worldwide people continues. The seed of Abraham continues in the nation of Israel. And we know that Moses leads Israel out of the hand of slavery by God's providence through the parted Red Sea into the wilderness. God gives Moses the law to share with the people. Deuteronomy 4, 5-6 through 6, See, I have taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say surely this great nation is wise and understanding people in the sight of the peoples, another reference to the nations. Fast forward to David. David's on his way to a throne. He's a little shepherd boy. He's on his way to a throne. He fights a very, very famous battle. Little shepherd boy fights a nine-foot killing machine, literally known as the story of David and Goliath. Why did God empower David to kill Goliath? Not so we could, let me use an appropriate word here, manipulate, change, profane the purpose of God in these things. Not so we can take what God has done and shrink it down into a motivational pep talk like coaches to players not to proclaim it's the great underdog story, and we look to David so that we can conquer the Goliaths in our lives. Don't make me throw up. <laughs> We're good at making it about us, are we not? Listen, listen. First Samuel 17, 45, 46. Then David said to the Philistine... You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth. This is known as like holy trash talk. In the name of Jesus, in the power of God. Why? Why all that? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. The purpose is making much of the name of God. It's pointing to Jesus, it's pointing to the gospel for a people of every tribe, tongue, and nations. It's not about us, it's about Jesus, it's about God's glory, it's about God's name unto the nations. David goes on to take the throne, and God's promises are lived out through the Davidic covenant. Church, over 1,500 times, the purpose of God to be known and praised among the nations is made clear in the Holy Scriptures. God blesses his people, endures his people. He preserves the line to Christ so that they will be a blessing, so that the blessing, Jesus Christ, to come and save the saints will happen, as God ordained it, that we would go on to make much of his name among the nations. Jesus lives the perfect life without sin, goes to the cross, dies in the place of his people, the elect, secures God's chosen victory in Christ's blood. Jesus is the raised from the dead, interacts with his disciples and followers, and gives them what is known as the commissioning statements. Here's why God's not taking us all to heaven right now in the new heavens and the new earth. He's going to send you out now as the body of Christ to spread this gospel, to make disciples. What is that commission? There's many, but I'll highlight the two most popular ones. Number one, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is our charge. In his authority, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The second most famous being Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Our modern application is from where we're at, out through our city, our country, to the ends of the earth. We have been blessed with the gospel, with redemption, to be a blessing. To testify as his witnesses, to go make disciples of all nations. What makes Disciples Church Disciples Church? We are working really hard to be faithful to what God's called us to do and to live out, out in Christ and not make it about us, but make it about what he's called us to do, the privilege it is to make disciples under the nations. I pray that this is a cherished thing you're a part of, that you see with clarity the everlasting and international feast that we will enjoy. And in the meantime, our commission to testify the gospel, to preach the gospel, to make disciples unto the nations. I pray you truly trust in Jesus Christ alone. I pray you see the fulfillment of his promises and his purposes in his covenants, that you see the aim of God to be known and praised among the nations that you see the great privilege it is to spread the good news of Jesus and to make disciples of the nations and that you have this great hope in Christ that you will feast with God forever. Amen? Lord, we pray that this time together is not a momentary thing, is not a, a momentary application but really moves in and through us. It immobilizes us unto a different kind of response, a different kind of faithfulness, a different kind of repentance that our attitude about our days, our, our, our very scope and mindset is just set in the midst of this promise fulfilled the the work of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the the gospel that transforms lives, the, the family that you are expanding. My prayer this morning, leading up to this morning, has been that you would bless us, not that our temporary chairs would be filled, but bless us with eternal family, family members that we will not only raise a generation together with and therefore consider so precious men and women and children that might walk through our doors, that we not just have a temporary view of their attendance of our church, but have an eternal view that I will banquet with them at your table forever if you save them. That you would commission us, Lord, to die to ourselves to make disciples of the nations, that we would take these things so seriously that they would be to us a true joy and not a burden. We would behold and steward these other things around us rightly. And so I just call out to you. I say, Lord, we're so utterly desperate for you to be the cornerstone upon which all of this happens. Let us never for a moment think we do this without you, that you would be glorified, that you'd be made much of. Father, hear us as we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.